0: This morning we're looking at the second message of the risen and coming Christ to the churches in Asia Minor. This one to the church at Smyrna's. So our text is the New Testament lesson from Revelation chapter 2. Smyrna was a very proud and prosperous and beautiful city. It rivaled Ephesus For prominence in this part of the world. Ephesus was probably the chief city. But Smyrna had a stadium. It had a library. It had the largest public theater in Asia Minor. And there are a number of background considerations here which are important. First, this city, Smyrna, has a strong and very special relation with Rome. And thus with the empire. Smyrna had sided with Rome in Rome's wars against Carthage a couple centuries before our text. This was the first city in the ancient world to build a temple to the goddess Roma. They did this about 190 B.C. In in traditional Roman religion, Roma was a female deity and she personified the city of Rome. And more broadly, the Roman state. Smyrna built a temple for her. First city to do so. And in addition, Smyrna won a competition. A kind of, uh, you know, like, like cities bid today for the Olympics. Smyrna won a competition with all the cities of Asia Minor to build a temple to the emperor Tiberius. A man who was emperor when Jesus was a young man. They built this temple to the emperor Tiberius in 23 A.D. and thus Smyrna was a center for the worship both of Rome as a city and of Rome as an empire, Caesar worship. So in addition to this, the city also has a large Jewish population. Hostile as the text indicates, to the Christian faith. And so you've got this combination in Smyrna of basically state worshipers and hostile Jews. And this makes living as a Christian there exceptionally difficult. And the text makes it clear that persecution is about to break on these Christians. And an example of the kind of uh, opposition faced in Smyrna shortly after the time of the book of Revelation comes from the middle of the second century in the very famous account of the martyrdom of Polycarp. Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna, this very church. And according to tradition, Polycarp was ordained by John himself, the writer of the book of Revelation. And in 156 AD, at the age of 85, Polycarp was martyred, primarily by fire, for refusing to acknowledge Caesar as Lord. And Polycarp then, as a young man, Would likely have read this letter, our very text, perhaps even as a member of this very church before he was ordained as the bishop of Smyrna. And so he's an example then of one who has an ear to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches, and by this very text to steel himself for his ordeal. So we'll make four points. They're there in your outline. The address, the situation, the, the coming persecution, and then exhortation and promise. So first, the address. Christ describes himself as the first and the last. We saw from the Old Testament lesson, from Isaiah 44, this is a title that Yahweh, the God of Israel, uses For himself. And so when Jesus uses this title for himself, he is saying, I am the God of Israel incarnate. It's a a title of deity. It's equivalent to Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, which we already saw in Revelation, are used of God himself. And in addition to be the first and the last, is a description of Jesus Christ's living reality as exhaustively sovereign over all things, including life and death. And this sovereignty of of Christ is not, certainly here, is not to become a matter for philosophical discussion. This is the very ground of the suffering church's hope. Martin Luther once said this, he said, the Christian's chief and only comfort in adversity lies in knowing that God does not lie, but brings all things to pass and that his will cannot be resisted, altered, or impeded. To call Jesus the first and the last is to go to what the Heidelberg Catechism calls our only comfort in life and death. Because he is not simply the first and the last. He is also, the text says, the one who died and came to life. By the way, notice this is another claim to deity, of course. The Lord God Almighty was described in the opening of the book as the one who was and who is and who is to come. Jesus is the first, that is, he was, He's the one who died and came to life. That is, He is. And He is the last. That is, He is the one who is to come. He is the Lord God Almighty in human flesh. And so this declaration is not an abstraction. It's a sovereignty demonstrated in history, in victory over death, and it thus guarantees and secures your resurrection. And the victory of God's faithful people. And these words, this opening address, is particularly apt for the situation of these Smyrna Christians. They're in a difficult situation, and they learn at the outset that neither death nor life, nor rulers, nor powers, nor principalities, nor anything else in all creation is going to separate them from the love of God in Jesus Christ, risen and sovereign as Lord. And so that's the address. The situation then, which is our second point, verse 9, Christ begins with the words, I know, we saw this, right? He has flaming eyes of fire, John says. He penetrates, He sees, He knows. And here the knowing is sympathetic knowing. Know, the knowing of Christ, the Christ who knows us, can be unnerving. But here, it's very comforting. There's a kind of sympathy expressed to this church. And so we're reminded that we're never alone in our afflictions. The first and the last, the one who is dead and who has come to life, is always with us. And always knows us. And what he knows here of this church is called their tribulation. Or their affliction. The church at Smyrna was certainly not raptured or taken away from tribulation. Tribulation here takes a couple, two immediate forms. The first is linked with their poverty. You can see that In the text, there's a mention of their poverty, which would have been stark because the city was so affluent. In Smyrna, as elsewhere, as we'll see as we go through the book, it was difficult to make a living without compromising with the imperial cult, with the cult of Roman worship. And thus many, the ones who didn't compromise, were destitute. Jews and pagans both may have been unwilling to trade with these Smyrna Christians, to do business with them. Now in chapter 13 of the book of Revelation, the beast emerges. He's actually mentioned one time before that, but he emerges in full array in chapter 13. And the beast is first and foremost the imperial power of the empire. And one of the things the beast does is he forbids buying or selling, that is economic commerce, without the reception of his mark. Now we'll cover this later in the series, but even here in Smyrna, the point is clear. These Christians are poor because of the refusal to capitulate to the worship of the emperor and the empire carries grave economic consequences. If you don't think that capitulating with the current ethos of our elite empire on certain matters will not economically affect your career, then, then, beloved, you're not paying attention. The beast demands compliance. If you don't take the mark, you don't become an executive at Google. The same dynamic is always at work in empires. They dictate And they say, well, if you're going to do that, we're going to close your business. You can't buy and you can't sell unless we brand you. And those who don't conform will be impoverished. And that dynamic is at play in the first century. But the one who knows, however, renders the true evaluation of their condition, it comes in this parenthetical phrase in the text, but you are rich. Meaning you're spiritually wealthy. The painful realities that accompany poverty for Christ's sake are not tragedies. God has, James says, chosen the poor in the world that they might be rich in faith. Paul speaks of of his own apostolic ministry and says, we are poor, but we make many rich. We have nothing, but we possess all things. And so the wealthy pagan empire worshipers look at the church of Smyrna, they see only poverty. But the first and the last sees a church laying up treasure in heaven. And Christ also knows, and this is the second Aspect of their tribulation. He knows, verse 9 says, the slanderous accusations directed against them by the Jews. The the martyrdom of Polycarp, which I mentioned, uh, documents the hostility of the Jewish community in Smyrna to the church. That The document says that after Polycarp confessed that he was a Christian... Now, this is an 85-year-old man. The account says the whole multitude of the heathen and the Jews living in Smyrna cried out with uncontrollable wrath. We're not used to living in times when being a Christian is met with uncontrollable wrath in the United States. But we may be seeing some of the beginnings of it. Then, the martyrdom of Polycarp continues, then, even though it was the Sabbath, the Jews joined with the mob in gathering wood to burn Polycarp alive. And Christ calls these ethnic Jews, those who say they are Jews, but they are not. Right Paul makes it clear in Romans that Jewishness is not a matter of ethnicity but a faith in the Messiah. True circumcision is not of the flesh but of the heart. The Jews in Smyrna they say they're Jews but Christ says they are not they are the synagogue of Satan. Again notice notice this paradox uh, in the way that the first and the last evaluates things. The Smyrnans are poor, but he says they're rich. The members of the synagogue claim to be Jews, but the first and the last says they are a synagogue of Satan. People and institutions are what Jesus says they are. Don't trust people's self narration You know, when people or institutions tell you what they're all about, you should be suspicious. What matters is what the first and the last describes. And to call, now these are harsh words, of course, and they should not be extended beyond the Jews in Asia Minor, in Smyrna, in the first century. There's no warrant for for anti-Semitism in a text like this. The text is, is singling out a handful of Jews. And here... To call the Jews in Smyrna a synagogue of Satan has a number of implications. Satan first appears in this book in chapter 12. And he's a drag, He appears as a dragon. And the dragon is the power behind the bestial dominion of the Roman Empire. And so this is a synagogue in league with the Roman Empire against the church. That'll help a lot, I think, in your mind if you get that architecture. There's the the empire and the synagogue and they're arrayed under under satanic power against the church. And this word Satan means adversary or accuser. So the slander of the, the Jews against the Smyrna Christians probably consists of accusations against them To the public authorities. We can see why this is so if we step back just for a minute. In the early decades of the church's existence, the Roman authorities could not tell the difference between Christians and Jews. Right there, they're not like scholars in religion. They're just public government politicians. Right? Have you ever noticed how awfully the media handles Christianity and religion in general today? They still can't. They still can't figure out anything with any level of nuance at all. Well, imagine in the first century, you're a Roman official and there's a squabble in Palestine between the followers of this guy who says he's the Messiah and these other guys. They just thought the whole thing was an in-house squabble between the Jews. It's just a Jewish thing. This becomes important by the time the book of Revelation is written, because the Jews had exemptions. They had legal protections, which protected them from idolatrous participation in the imperial worship, right? The the thought may have crossed your mind, if imperial worship and pagan religion was such an issue, how did the Jews even survive in the Roman Empire, Well, they survived because they essentially had negotiated protections because of their ancestral faith. They would offer a sacrifice for the empire in the temple, for the emperor in the temple, and they would pray for him. And Rome basically decided all right, we'll let them get away with that. We're not going to make them burn incense and call Caesar Lord. But new religions were not exempted. Right? So the Jews have a health and human services mandate. They don't have to give free contraceptions out to all employees. But the other religions don't have the mandate. So the precise nature of the slander in view here seems to be that the Jews are going to the authorities and saying, look, these people are not Jewish. They're not just another Jewish sect. They're essentially a non-Jewish group. And if so, then like all Gentiles, they should be required to show political loyalty to the empire. They should participate in the emperor worship. And if they don't, of course, they should be viewed as treasonous traitors and atheists. And so the Jews are essentially informing on the Christians to the imperial authorities. And this background goes a very long way toward explaining both the poverty and the slander to which the church is subjected in Smyrna. But the first and the last sees it differently. He unmasks the situation. He says, they're not Jews at all. They're a synagogue of the accuser. And they're in league with the Roman beast. And to the Smyrna Christians, this knowledge of their plight by the first and the last, this amounts to a benediction. Blessed are you when men slander you and accuse you and say all sorts of things falsely against you for my sake. So the third point then is what's, what's coming here, the coming persecution. Look at verse 10. Don't be afraid. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. The tribulation is both imminent, the first and last says, and it's unavoidable. You are about to suffer this. And so lest this fear of this impending suffering would cause cause them to lose hold of Christ, he exhorts them. Do not fear. Remember back in chapter 1 when John saw the Christ who's speaking here, the transfigured Christ, he falls down as a dead man. And Jesus lays his hand on him And he says this, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. The same words virtually that he addresses the Smyrna church with in verse 8. These words are designed to banish fear. Imagine having this experience. Confronting this Jesus. The text invites you to enter into this experience imaginatively. In fact, the text speaks this to you. You see this Jesus. You fall down dead. He lays his hand on you and says, Do not be afraid. I'm the first. I'm the last. I was slain. I am raised. What are you going to be afraid of after that? Cancer? What? you kidding me? It is important for our imaginations to be stirred and reordered and restructured by a text like this. There's a lot of stuff to be afraid of. But not in the presence of the first and the last who was dead and is alive forevermore. Do not fear, Jesus said, those who can merely kill the body. And so the text continues. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Through the Roman authorities, the dragon is at work. And so part of what the first and last is doing to you, to me, to the church is saying, look, your suffering and your struggles are part of this cosmic conflict between Christ and Satan. And it's part of the unmasking function of the whole book of Revelation to help us frame things this way. Things don't just happen. You know, there are are two errors to avoid here. One is this. There are people who see demons under every rock. That's erroneous. Satan is one fallen angel. He's not omnipresent. And there's not seven billion of them. Right? He can't be in your bedroom every night and be in somebody all over the world either. On the other hand, there are people who act as if dark principalities and powers have no existence whatsoever. There, There is a satanic force. There are satanic powers there are principalities and powers and they affect the lives of men and nations and the church is at war with them. And so the imminent suffering here is imprisonment. They always imprison you before they kill you. And prison, in other words, they haven't gone to direct martyrdom yet in the history of the church. That comes later. But prison in the ancient world was not a place where you served a limited term and then were released. Prison did two things in the ancient world. Either it compelled obedience, in other words, you were misbehaving and you were going to change your behavior, or you owed some fine and you were going to pay it. You stayed in prison until you obeyed. Or it was the place you awaited trial and execution. And the purpose, the text says, in these upcoming imprisonments is that this church of Smyrna is going to be tested. The great uh, Scottish theologian Samuel Rutherford said that The devil is but God's master fencer to teach us how to handle our weapons. And so this is a text which says, uh, in all of our affliction, we are to ask ourselves, what is the divine purpose in this? How am I to profit from this? How am I to learn how to handle my weapons better? We go through our afflictions, we don't even think about handling weapons because we don't frame them in terms of this cosmic conflict. and There's a reference to 10 days, probably a symbolic number for a short but intense limited period of persecution, though it could be a literal 10 days. Christ continues, be faithful unto death. Martyrdom is probably in view here, but the text could mean be faithful even if it leads to death. Be faithful unto death is the counterpart to fear not. So the city of Smyrna prides itself on faithfulness to Rome. And John calls for faithfulness to Christ. And in Smyrna, this faithfulness means you're going to get a preview in Smyrna of the martyrs who appear throughout the rest of the book and who will litter the landscape of the Roman Empire over the next few centuries. But the endurance that the text calls for is not for a special class of Christians. It applies to all of us. Because we are all called to die daily. Jesus says this to everyone, not just to people who might be thrown in prison next week. He says to all disciples, take up your cross Follow me. Lose your life for my sake and the gospel's sake. And so the whole of Christian discipleship, even if our situation is not nearly as desperate as the situation here, the whole of Christian discipleship is preparation for death. Now John Wesley famously said uh, to a compatriot, you know, as, as a parish pastor, he said, our people die well that's a wonderful thing for a pastor to be able to say my people die well they die well because they die every day the ground of this command then be faithful unto death is because Jesus was the one who died and came to life he's the faithful witness and martyr All of our afflictions, the Puritan John Owen said this, all of our afflictions are Christ's afflictions in the first place. And they're ours only by participation. This is what redeems your suffering from its senselessness. It is somehow mysteriously gathered up into his anguish and his suffering. And so the coming persecution comes with a promise. I'll give you the crown of life. Now, Smyrna was famous, this is why it had the stadium, it was famous for its athletic games, and the crown of life here is is modeled on the wreath or the garland that would be awarded to the victor at the games. And in addition to this, there was this famous circle of colonnaded buildings on the crest of Mount Pagos, P-A-G-O-S, which was a harbor mountain, in, uh, in Smyrna. And that crest of colonnaded buildings was known as the crown of Smyrna. Smyrna was itself crowned by its own architecture. And Smyrna awarded crowns at the games. And so the transfigured Christ, the one who knows, uses these local images. And he transforms them and says, I will give you the crown of life. Eternal kingly, victorious reign with Christ. This is present now in a partial way. We saw that in chapter 1 where it said that the church is already kings and priests with God. But nevertheless here, the crown seems to be awarded to the martyrs at death. And we'll see throughout the book that the first and the last, when he looks on the martyrs, he doesn't see dead corpses he sees them reigning with Christ in heaven. The promised crown here is held out to each of us. Right? 2 Timothy 2, If we endure, we shall reign with him. Finally, the exhortation and the promise. The one who conquers. Now, conquering here, conquering here has to be... has to reshape what we might naturally think it means. Conquering here is the ironic victory of martyrdom after the pattern of Christ. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. We'll see more of this in chapter 20, but the the first death is bodily death. We all die. The second death is eternal judgment or the lake of fire. Those who are faithful, Jesus says here, the second death has no power over them. In fact, in the lake of fire, the end of the book of Revelation tells us, go the fearful and the cowardly. And here he said to the Smyrnans, do not be afraid. Do not be cowards. So let me, let me conclude. It's crucial to see in this passage that the one who's speaking the first and the last, the one who was dead and is now alive, had his own Smyrna experience. Jesus's was a life of tribulation, of poverty, of slander, of arrest, of imprisonment, and finally death. He who was rich became poor that we, through his poverty, might, like the Smyrnans, become rich. And so again, the one who's first and last, the one who was dead and now lives, he must loom larger in your vision, in our imaginations, than death itself. He's worth dying for. Or for those of us who are unlikely to face martyrdom, we can put it this way. Jesus is worth dying to self, dying daily, so that when the time comes, we might die in him as faithful witnesses. We should not think that this text is only about Christians who are going to get martyred and really doesn't apply to us because we don't live in that kind of situation. If he's not worth dying for, then he's not worth living for. So see afresh then, the first and the last. The one who has died and has come to life. Do not fear. Be faithful. Die daily. Be faithful unto death. Amen. Amen.